but the supply is the issue. We just aren't building a lot of housing in this country. And as long as that demand continues to be high and the supply continues to be constricted, prices are going to be high. You know, you have these cities with these progressive politicians who at the same time aren't actually willing to say it's a clear supply and demand issue. And I don't see a universe in which developers don't want to build for that supply. So it's governmental forces that are artificially hampering it. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? On today's show, new revelations are coming out regarding Hillary Clinton and her involvement in disseminating some unvetted reporting on Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. We'll discuss these new findings. Speaking of new findings, the Supreme Court is still trying to find a person who leaked a draft opinion of the court's upcoming ruling on an abortion law. We'll take a look at some of the extreme measures the court is now taking to patch up its leaks. And a major question bouncing around the country right now. What's the deal with the current housing market? Is it a bubble? And if so, when will it burst so all my millennial friends can finally move out of their parents' basements? But first things first, we begin in Uvalde, Texas. As the timeline of last week's deadly shooting grows clearer, so is the persistent accusation that a cautious, drawn-out police response violated protocol and possibly cost lives. Officers waited well over an hour in the hallway outside the barricaded classroom while the gunman continued firing on students and teachers. Officials have been quick to condemn the decision to wait, but clearly it's too late now to save anyone who might have been spared by the right response. So Ravi, as the picture of what happened that day grows clearer to us all, uh, what was your first reactions to some of these new revelations? Well, I think I was puzzled like I think everybody was when we were starting to see some of the video that came out. And I think the initial response, at least from friends in my life, and parents especially were like, wow, they were calling these cops cowards for not going in. Mm-hmm. And I think a question I have for you is, do we know that they were not going in because they were afraid or because there was a misunderstanding about like whether this guy was isolated on his own or not, right? Like, what do we know about that? There is a ton of detail coming out as far as the timeline of what basically happened. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can because it's kind of lengthy. So I basically start from when the shooter actually arrived at the school because we all know he did uh, shoot his grandmother before even before all of this even happened. Around 1128 a.m., the shooter crashed his vehicle in a ditch near the school. Two witnesses saw him and tried to approach him, but he uh, the shooter began shooting at them at 1130 a.m., a teacher at the elementary school makes a 911 call reporting about the crash and seeing the shooter, seeing that he has a gun. So at 1130 a.m., uh, 911 is aware that there's a person on the premise with a gun. He starts shooting his way through the parking lot. It be- I believe it was at 1133 a.m. The shooter actually entered the school through a back door, which the teachers had propped open. He shot at least 100 rounds at this point into the classrooms, 111 and 112, which were connected. At 11.35 a.m., three Uvalde police officers rushed through that same door. So at 11.35 a.m., the police are entering the building, but they the gunmen began shooting at them. They were grazed a little bit during that, and they retreated. So this, this notion that the, that the cops didn't enter at all for an hour is actually not true. They did enter within 10 minutes of the shooting starting, but they retreated almost immediately after that. Uh, so the rounds kind of continue from that point forward. 11.43, the elementary school announced on Facebook that they were under a lockdown, but they claimed that the building was secure and that the students were safe. We all know that that was not true. 11.44, the police of Uvalde began reaching out to other areas, asking for as much backup as they possibly can, more safety equipment. More police were arriving to scene. And 12.03, uh, more police officers are in, uh, arriving to the scene. There are some cops at this point, like we said, that are in the hallways. Yeah, let's pause there for a second, because mm-hmm. I know like... Uh, 
this is a lot, right? So like from what I understand at that point, so we're now about 30 minutes after the initial, the initial crash and then shooting, which happens like almost minute, a minute or two after this crash and, the, and that initial call. So you got 30 minutes. There's some group of, of police officers gathered in the hallway outside of the classroom that this guy was in there, right? I can only imagine what that experience must have been like standing there as a parent. And we've seen the videos of certain parents that were even being handcuffed at the scene because they were trying to ask these cops, like, why are you not going in? Why are you not doing more? And yet uh, we all know that it seems as if there was some type of break in communication or some type of problem in the communication between the higher ups and the people on the scene. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because that seems like what we know today, that that might be where the critical breakdown took place, which is to remind the audience now, we're 30 minutes into this incident. You've got cops in the hallway outside of the classroom where this shooter is in there with children. And they don't go in until 12.50. So a full 78 minutes after the shooter enters the school. And in the meantime, there are multiple 911 calls from students yes. in the classroom yes. saying that they need help. Yeah. And yeah. somehow this doesn't get to the commanding officer uh, and the officers on the ground until way later, which seems like one of the critical errors here. Mm. It should also be pointed out that Border Patrol Tactical Unit was the ones who actually went in and finally engaged the gunman. It was not the actual police officers with the Uvalde Police Department. And I think it's, at least as of this morning, it's unclear who made the final order. So like yeah. we're, I think it'll come out at some point who actually made that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and the DOJ is investigating at the request of the mayor and also um, Governor Abbott, who originally praised the police officer, says that he was misled and that he's very disappointed in how this was carried out. And so he's also um, pushing for an investigation too. So I think a lot more details will come out. For sure. Well, I, I know that this will set off a, a bit of a debate. So l let's add a couple more details here because the, the larger context of gun reform uh, has advanced in a, in a certain way since the last time we covered this last week. So there are a couple of notable things that have happened. And I'm just going to point to two. One is that Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday announced the introduction of a bill that would put a freeze, a national freeze on handgun ownership across Canada. And he said, quote, what this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere into Canada. He says, in other words, we're capping the market. This new legislation would also require that long gun magazines can never hold more than five rounds. Interesting to see how they can, they're going to be able to implement that particular part of the law. Uh, so that's one notable thing that's happening. Another notable thing that I think has been injected into the debate is Joe Rogan. He, he weighed in on this on gun control generally. Let's go to that clip. So this country has a mental health problem disguised as a gun problem. And that's what it is. It's, yeah. the, there's, there's so many guns. There's more guns than there are people. It's not a, I don't think it's a gun situation. And I don't think you can change the fact that there's, and I don't think it's wise to take the guns away from the people and leave all the power to the government. We see how they are even with an armed populace. My question is, Ricky, because I know that this is not exactly your argument, but I would say like it, it echoes some of the things that we talked about and some of the tensions uh, and differences that we had on Thursday. My question is, like, is the vision here that we're going to use guns against the government? Because that seems to be what he's saying is like we we the argument is that we need arms so that we can resist the government. I'd want to know, like, specifically, like what kind of incidents we're talking about here? Like, like in what way is Joe Rogan's gun going to help him against the government? And what specifically is are he and other people who are proponents of the Second Amendment worried about? I mean, I think it's less an like an armed uprising mutiny sort of thing and just believing that you have the right to self-defense and that only the government should not be, or the government should not have a monopoly on lethal 
force, especially living in a context like this country where we have so many illicit guns. And theoretically, in this case, this was a legal gun. But in other cases, uh, in other mass shooting events, they've been illegal uh, in the past. And this is an example of why, you know, we don't have a perfect world where we can just take away everyone's gun and live in a gunless society. I would love that, but that's just not a reality. Um, and I think that this is this is proof that you don't just want to have to defend depend on law enforcement to protect you if there is somebody who is as threatening and as terrifying as this person was. And it's really unfortunate that sometimes law enforcement does fail. And if you want to take matters into your own hands, perhaps in your own home, I mean, obviously a school shooting is not perfectly analogous, but even if a private school wants to have an armed security guard, I think that this is a demonstration of the fact that you can't just depend on the government to make these decisions and to do this properly. And I think it's also worth noting though that this is not an indictment on policing as a whole. This, what happened here was completely contrary to mass shooting protocol. This is a really grotesque example of poor policing. But um, after Columbine in 1999, they established the precedent that you should stop a shooter at all costs, even bypassing helping victims in order to stop more victims from getting in the crossfire. I agree, Ricky, with the idea that we need guns for personal defense, but I don't think that's what Rogan was talking about. I don't think that's what the vast majority of people on the right and the far right are talking about. They really do believe that one day their guns are going to help them against some type of confrontation with the government. You hear this all the time from people like Madison Cawthorn. You hear this all the time. Madison Cawthorn has even invoked the Vietnam War, saying that the Vietnam War is an example of small people armed that can take on a powerful military. And that's incorrect in a lot of different ways. I won't get into all of that. But another two problems that I have with what Rogan is talking about is one, he says it's a mental health problem, not a gun control problem or not a gun problem. Okay. So will anyone in the conservative circle tell me their plan to fix mental health in America? Right. Yeah. And like, I, it's a, I never hear any plan. It's just, mm -hmm. just an no, excuse. It's true. To not I think it's I think it's used sometimes to obfuscate the entire debate. I think there's a mental health problem and there's a gun problem and those can coexist mm -hmm. and those can be very interrelated. Yep. And I agree with you that more solutions need to be targeted towards that issue for people who are pro gun. For sure. And I think like I, I think what this kind of updates our story from Thursday, right? Because I think we're having this discussion when you take the Canada anecdote into account we were having this discussion or debate about the uk and how they reformed their laws in the 90s now canada has a higher gun ownership rate than i imagine the uk had mm -hmm. in 1997 when they reformed their laws not as much as the us right i think they have like something yeah. like 20 something guns per 100 people where the us were over 100 per 100 people so more guns per than people but it is more of a gun owning society than the uk was when they reformed their laws so i think what we have now is a bit of a controlled experiment now where we can now see what's going to happen in canada when they do this freeze how is it going to affect gun crimes gun deaths overall violent crime if it stays into in, in in effect or at least gets passed and stays in effect for a significant period of time and then i think we can test our theories like my theory is that the the poison is in the dose and that like the sheer volume of guns uh, especially when you take into account that over 80% of these K-12 mass shootings are done, you know, with people taking legal guns from family members and friends means that like even legal gun ownership to me is part of the problem. And we obviously had a huge debate and discussion over the Second Amendment, which gets to some of the stuff Rogan's talking about. 
And so I think this is a controlled experiment that we can we can watch over the course of the next few years to see what happens. I think Canadian society is a little different than American society. Yeah. So I do agree that it is an interesting experiment. But I also think the Canadian thing is going a little too far. I think Trudeau is going far here. I don't believe you should ban handguns. I just believe we should get common sense things like universal background checks, red flag laws, different things like that in place that we can't even have a conversation about that because the gun lobby in this country is just so powerful and they stop any conversation about any level of gun control. Yeah, I would have to agree. Trudeau doesn't really have the best uh track record on civil liberties as far as I'm concerned. But I, I agree with you that there are common sense measures that can be taken just to prevent something if if at all possible. I, I don't I don't see the argument against just at least making the most basic reforms. But unfortunately, we're in such a gridlock over this because people see because there is such a large faction of people who do advocate for very full scale reforms. I think a lot of people who are on the pro gun side end up getting very defensive about even the smaller steps towards that. Yeah, and I'm admittedly one of those people. Anybody who listened to last week's episode is I, I would get rid of all the guns if I could. And I think this is also a test case of the confiscation d- discussion that we had. Like, you know, 26 per 100 or whatever, how many guns they have in Canada is not our level, but it will be interesting to see how the government goes about the process of. Is there another step where they start taking the guns from people who currently own them and they go beyond the freeze? And that will get to the question you had, which is, is that possible? And what does that do to society? And also prohibition tends to make markets more dangerous and more illicit. And we also have 3D printers and a lot of technological possibilities that I think could circumvent any confiscation of legal guns or traditionally manufactured guns. So I I think that it's um, potentially a really precarious path to go down, but yeah. It remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. Russiagate and the 2016 election are back in the news this week as one of its leading characters, Hillary Clinton, takes center stage. Clinton's campaign manager testified Friday that she personally approved leaking a story on Donald Trump that the campaign hadn't vetted. And it turned out to be false, namely that Trump had a secret back channel with Russia's Alpha Bank. Conservative outlets are casting this as a smoking gun. Ricky, walk us through what's going on with this Durham probe. And that's the probe that actually sparked this whole new conversation in the first place. So it's part of the Durham investigation, which is um, an investigation into like some of the more salacious and provably false claims about a Trump-Russia connection, mainly involving the FBI and the use of the FBI and in investigating them. And so th- in this specific instance, this is an accusation that the Hillary campaign planted a, an October surprise and planted it within the FBI, which is the critical point here. And so Sussman, the lawyer, is charged with one count of lying to the FBI for saying that he was not going there for on, on behalf of any clients, which he maintains is true. But the allegation is that how could that be true if he's working for the Clinton campaign at the time? And so essentially what he did was he handed a memo to them about how Trump was connected with Alpha Bank to the FBI. He said that you should investigate this. It turns out the FBI said that it was very weak and not um, really substantiated in any way. Essentially, it was just like back channel marketing emails and there was no clear proof. It was just jumping from like zero to 100. And so the allegation is that the Clinton campaign brought this to the FBI to essentially have the meat, give the media some meat to this story to say, oh, well, the FBI is investigating this. And so therefore, this is a really important story. And at the same time, Clinton, we do know, um, based on testimony from this trial, personally okayed sending this memo to a Slate reporter. And that ultimately came out. And then she tweeted the the article almost right after. And so essentially... The fault line here is what we definitely know is that she planted the story or at least personally okayed planting the story in the media and then promoted it. And the story's 
pretty shaky according to FBI testimony. It it seems like this is something that the reporters should have noticed and also something that the Hillary campaign should have noticed. But the critical question here is whether Sussman went to the FBI on his own, as he said, and as all everyone involved in the Clinton campaign maintains, or whether he went on behalf of them. And I think that's that's a really difficult issue because you you would have to prove that he a was going on behalf of them and b that he knew the allegations to be false yep. in order to go to the FBI. So I think where this comes down legally will be interesting, but there's definitely some foul play at the very least. But you know the question is then how typical is that of a political campaign? Period. Yeah, and just a few disclosures here, and and these are pretty lengthy. One is that uh, the law firm at issue here is a law firm called. Perkins Coie, which is a you know, longtime political law firm, and we use them to help set up the loss debate in the first place. Now, I don't know Sussman. I don't believe I've ever met him before, but I just wanted to mention that as we do the story. And I've also had a longstanding relationship with Hillary Clinton, who's funded a previous organization that I ran and that I still sit on the board with. I came into the story thinking, all right, who's covering this? And so I searched online, and like this is just in the search of titles of podcast episodes. There's, I literally could not find a single progressive podcast that's even touching the story. So that made me excited to tackle the story to be like, all right, like I don't want this to be another Hunter Biden type thing where there's like asymmetric coverage on one side. I do think though, after looking at it and and Ricky, you shared with me the Hills coverage of this and Robbie Suave, I thought, I think where he came out on this is where I am, which is number one, it was really dumb for this guy to, to voluntarily uh, make statements to the FBI, especially as a lawyer, mm -hmm. especially like whether he gets out of this or not, it was not smart to be playing as loose as he was in his statements to the FBI. And the second is that this is kind of standard practice stuff in campaigns. It's like you find some dirt, you try to get it into the hands of reporters and in this case, law enforcement. And I think I don't see this sort of dramatic moment here because the FBI didn't think it was credible. There was like I think like a couple stories in the news, but it was dwarfed by all the other Russia related stuff that Trump had going on and which we could talk about. There still continues to be, there's this sense that Trump doesn't have like these Russia ties or that there was nothing to the Russia story. Like the Wall Street Journal in writing about this said, they said, quote, this was a three year investigation to nowhere about Russia. And I just disagree. I, I think that you could both say this was not credible, but also say there was a ton of other credible stuff mm -hmm. around Trump and Russia. Yeah, I think another important wrinkle to this, though, is it's um, the fact that Fusion GPS was the company that was involved in this and that also Clinton was just fined by the FEC for not disclosing $105,000 worth of research, uh, research funding that they said was like legal spending, essentially, that did go to fusion and ultimately led to the Steele dossier's creation. And so this is definitely part of a larger thing than just this isolated instance. But I, I would agree that the people who are saying this is a complete smoking gun right now, that's definitely not been proven. The Sussman case will probably take about two weeks in court. And so we'll see if there is a stronger connection between him and the campaign. I think that it's pretty uh, feasible, but I, I also don't think that there's any clear direct evidence that someone, or why really would somebody say, go this random lawyer, go to the FBI on our behalf? I mean, he is publicly involved with that. And the so. timing question, this was, if I'm correct, right? This was like in the fall of 2020, right before the election. This is all like October, yeah. So I think like this is where I yeah, think the, the overselling of this, I think gets me a little bit concerned, right? Because I think like people like the Wall Street Journal are basically saying and implying that the the FBI investigation into Trump was triggered by this in some way. But, and I know you know this isn't true, but in 
you know, the, from what I understand, the FBI investigation into Trump's Russia connections started in the spring of 2016. And there was this critical meeting between a Trump advisor, George Papadopoulos, where he divulged to an Australian diplomat that he had reason to think that Russia was taking active measures against the Clinton campaign. And then that Australian diplomat shared that information because there's some kind of widespread practice of sharing intelligence between Australia and the U.S. They shared that with U.S. intelligence. That's what triggers the investigation. And that the, there was an avalanche of other stuff. There was stuff that was later proven to be false, um, like the Steele dossier, which largely played out after the election. But then there was a ton of stuff that the Senate Intelligence Committee has confirmed, and this was chaired by Republican Richard Burr, where basically they said that Trump misled the public and explicitly lied about his business dealings in Russia, especially about this Trump Tower, including you know business dealings that went deep into the campaign season, um, that he lied about that, that there was this meeting with this Russian lawyer where the Trump campaign thought they were going to get dirt. They wound up not getting dirt. But I think the very fact that they took this meeting was a huge center of the Mueller probe. And then you have Roger Stone, who was trying to be basically had some really hot activity with WikiLeaks, who wound up releasing these emails from the Clinton campaign. Never mind the fact that Trump himself publicly said he called on Russia to release or dig into dirt from the Clinton campaign emails, which uh, we have reason to think that Russia did almost immediately after Trump made that statement. So like to me, like there's a whole bunch of activity with Trump and Russia that the Senate Intelligence Committee bipartisan looked into and said there's there's a lot of stuff going on here. Now Mueller f- didn't think it was criminal, but that doesn't mean that Hillary Clinton created this scandal, you know? Yeah, but but when Trump said that about Russia, you got to remember Ravi, he was just joking, okay? <laughs> that's that's just his way. That's just the way he talks. That's just how he is. I think that's my biggest problem with this. This would be a bigger story to me if Hillary won. And that this somehow contributed to her win, then this would be a huge story to me because right. then it would, it would really call into question everything about that win. However, my biggest thing is, you know, Trump said stuff like Ted Cruz's dad helped kill JFK and, and everybody just said, oh, well, he's just joking. So why is it OK for Trump to allege these types of lies about his competitors? But if Hillary was to do and I'm not saying it's OK for Hillary to do this. I mean, if, if Hillary did this with knowledge that this was false information. I mean, that's that that needs to be atoned for. I mean, I, I don't agree with that at all. But why is it OK for Trump or is we allow that for Trump? But when if Hillary were to do it, then it's become, oh, it's the biggest scandal of the century. Well, I mean, this is paid for curated opposition research that did end up turning out to be uncorroborated or at least unsubstantiated. The Steele dossier dossier, and then potentially also this Alpha Bank allegation because Fusion GPS was involved in um, in planting that story with the media. So that definitely is at play. Like this was coordinated and this was definitely not just some like one-off comment. But But correct me if I'm wrong, Fusion GPS was originally had by Rubio's campaign. To, to get that information on Trump, correct? It was passed on, I think. It, but and then but it Hillary on, did also funnel um, over a million dollars to okay. them through her campaign. So this is, I mean, this is something that she was clearly directly involved in. And this is definitely more coordinated than Trump saying re- admittedly really dumb things. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. here to defend Trump or to say that Trump has not never done anything Russia related. I think that it, just the point is that you have a campaign that was funding stuff that was clearly untrue and that the media for a while was just picking up as truth. But in this specific example, um, so the FBI guy who testified said that it seemed like somebody, these are his words, that the person who had this memo about this Alpha Bank connection had a, who wrote it, had a mental disability. That was how unclear it was to him. And so the point being that the Hillary campaign should have sussed that out and realized 
or at the very least, the Slate reporter should have done that. So somebody's yeah. job was not done and it got kind of taken as truth as this leak from this highly credible source because it's coming from within the Clinton campaign and the FBI is now investigating it. And then all of a sudden that got kind of swirled up into this media narrative where all of a sudden it's ironclad and like Rachel Maddow talks about it for the next Yeah, and I, I think she mishandled decade. it. She should have apologized for her coverage on the Steele dossier. I think she got super defensive about that. And I, I like I, I think we could be of two minds, at least this is where I am. Like if this guy lied under oath or he lied to the FBI, then he should be held mm -hmm. accountable to that. The Hillary campaign, I'm like, what's the, like per Robbie's point, this is like not that out of like normal yeah. politics is like, there's a difference between having this information and passing it to reporters in the FBI versus like working with a foreign government yeah. to do that, right? Now, uh, I continue to think though, given this is the first time we've ever done a deep dive into Russia, that something weird is going on with Trump in Russia. Never mind his business dealings, all the stuff happening in plain sight. They announced sanctions last week. Uh, and you know, this was this is mind-boggling. They they announced um, travel restrictions, a ban for 963 Americans. This included Biden, Harris, Clinton, even Morgan Freeman. You know who was not on that list? Donald Trump. Uh, and I just find that absolutely mind-boggling that this continues to be like in plain sight. I'm like, yeah, I'm not I'm not saying necessarily anything illegal, but it's really strange. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. there's there's ample proof that I, there's not yet proof that there was something explicitly illegal in terms of collusion, but there's ample proof that he was just sort of like, all right, I'll take this help if I'm going to get it. Yeah, my um, whole thing with I'm sorry to cut you off, Ricky, but my whole thing is I, I mean, I don't I just personally, I'm not talking about, you know, what we know from the facts, but personally, I don't think Trump to Russia said, hey, help me win this election. Yeah. I think Russia saw that his, him being, his administration would be friendlier to them than, than Hillary Clinton's administration. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think we may never know. And, and I think like, that's why I believe in due process. I, I, I have issues with the Mueller probe, but I think in general, there wasn't anything egregious that happened. He came to a certain conclusion and the Senate Intelligence Committee report, I think, is the most detailed on this, and it was bipartisan. And I think it raises certain questions we have, even if it falls short of uh, a criminal act from mm -hmm. him. And I think, you know, we'll see where this all goes. And it's important to note that this is the first investigation coming out of the Durham probe. And so there will probably be a lot more revelations coming out. So it's just worth keeping an eye on. Well, break news. Literally, as we're recording this, our producer just told us that Sussman was acquitted. Uh, so... You know, this is like well, that changes radio. the nature of this entire conversation <laughs> to some degree. Well, I think like it doesn't in the sense that look, well, maybe it just gets to the sense that there's a question of whether he broke the law, but there's the larger story being told. So now this jury at least doesn't believe he he broke the law, but the larger story is, did Clinton's campaign quote unquote create the Russia investigation or did they do something unethical, et cetera? That's where I think this debate shifts towards. Mm -hmm. Totally. Most government agencies have more leaks than the Titanic, but the Supreme Court has been notoriously secure when it comes to keeping decisions secret before they are made public. Now the Supreme Court is taking unprecedented steps to find out who broke that long line of secrecy. As the court tries to figure out who leaked the draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade, it's taking steps to require clerks to hand over cell phone records and sign affidavits. Ricky, what exactly is going on here? Well, so according to an exclusive CNN scoop from three sources, we don't know who, um, it sounds like this investigation was launched by Roberts on May 3rd. 
um, and it includes scraping cell phone data from um, from law clerks within the Supreme Court and also making them sign affidavits, which is unprecedented within the court to go that far into investigating um, clerks. And clerks are really upset about it because obviously we're, we're not quite sure if that involves just like call logs or if it involves all of your personal messages and you know how much it ends up on people's cell phones. But clerks are reportedly looking for jobs elsewhere despite the fact that this is a very prestigious job to have. They also feel that this is a punitive investigation because there could be up to 75 other employees that this was shared with. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a clerk. And experts are saying that they might need independent legal counsel. But I think that the biggest takeaway here is that this means that even now they still don't know who leaked it and their investigation is not going as planned. I mean, this is tricky because if I were one of these employees and I was an innocent one uh, employee, I would not hand over my cell phone willingly, yeah. but I would sign an affidavit. If you asked me like, did I do it? I would be like, no, but like the idea, you know, as Tom Brady taught us, you know, don't hand that cell phone over unless you have to. I think in this case, I don't know if I would want the government having all my personal communications and I would fight that every step of the way if I were even an innocent member of the, the court. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are in it's, I mean, like if you're a clerk and you like try to seek a job elsewhere, it's kind of like, you know, telling on yourself in a, in a way. It is timing though. A lot of these people are leaving anyway because it's the end of the, term. The, end of the term. So, so that's you know, true. it's happening. I think this is a high stress environment because they're pumping out decisions right now and opinions. So this has got to be a really stressful time in general, both like putting out all these really high profile decisions. You got to remember, they're still put, they're, they're about to release this actual decision, but they're also releasing the New York Second Amendment case and yeah. a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff, the Coach Praying case. Yeah, They're doing all that at the, t- at the same time that they're investigating their own people who are writing these things. Man, that, that is tough. Like, yeah, and in, uh, that also can make you sympathetic to the fact that they want to investigate this and get to the bottom of this because it's such a consequential moment. It's 100%. such a consequential leak that occurred and it really threatens the court and the way that it's meant to function in the first place. And right. so I, it's really unfortunate that they can't even trust anyone in their yeah. circles. It's That's really, really disturbing. What's, what's interesting is this is actually not unique to government, especially the federal government. Generally, there are leaks everywhere mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. I think this is, as we've covered previously, this is just relatively new for the Supreme Court. Yeah. Like we've talked about it has happened before, but it really hasn't been uh, something that the court has had to deal with in a long time. My prediction in two years, there's going to be a pretty cool Netflix movie about this leak. <laughs> and we're going to see all the characters and it's going to all be this like hush hush stuff and it's going to be awesome. And you know what it's going to be called? Supreme leak. <laughs> I will trademark that. Yeah, I, I think... You know, we may never know. My guess is they're not going to find out who this person is if they're at this stage right now and still don't have that information. That's just my guess. But maybe that'll break before this episode's over too and I'll yeah. be proven wrong. And I don't think Supreme Leak was a good title. I think I'm going to have to work on that. But but I agree. I agree with what you're talking about. <laughs> Between leading economists, everyday people, and journalists with little else to write about, one question is coming up a lot right now. What is going on with the U.S. housing market? The question is breeding think pieces, press releases, and a lot of wondering about what constitutes a bubble and whether or not we're in one. Ravi, can you break down some of the things that we're hearing in regards to housing these days? Yeah, I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, people are are claiming or asking whether there is a a burst of the bubble happening right now in the housing market. And, and what's clear is that home prices have been at an all-time high and the amount of offers going above asking price are, have been at an all-time high. At the same time, inventory has been an all-time low. Mm-hmm. So there has there's definitely been a dramatic increase in the price of housing 
in the United States. And so that that is true. Now, whether it's a bubble that's bursting or not is a totally different question. Now, I'm, I'll, I'll go through the reasons why one could argue that there's a bubble bursting and then talk about reasons why it might not be. But, you know, here, there's some stuff happening in the housing market that we should all be aware of. There, there does seem to be some kind of cooling down happening. New home sales fell 17% in April. Inventory is rising across the country, which usually, you know, obviously supply demand, more inventory means prices could drop. The number of houses on the market increased 8.9% between February and April. And 30-year mortgage rates are obviously on the the increase. Huge increase. Yeah, the rate of increase is actually the highest we've seen in a long time. But even though the rate of increase is going up, we're still nowhere near what the interest rates were during most of the 90s mm-hmm. uh, up until the uh, the Great Recession. So even if, they, if they're going up, they're still not arriving at a place that is historically super high. So the, all that would come together to make one think, all right, and home builders are saying new home construction is slowing down. All these things tell us that there, there could be a cooling of the market, but I'm not convinced, but I'll get into that. But I'm not convinced that this is a bubble burst, though. Mm. And um, just to put a little more context on the numbers here, prices have jumped 134% uh, for homes in five years and wages only by 37%. And globally, the 10 cities that have become the most unaffordable the most quickly have all been in the United States. And so, mm. um, I mean, this is this is really tough for anybody who's looking to break into the market now. So what are the what are the cases for this actually being a bubble? Yeah, so all of that I just said is basically all we've got to say that this is a bubble that could be bursting, right? Now, the problem, the thing with a bubble is in order for you to believe it's a bubble, you have to say that this asset is being increased outside of its actual value, right? And like a bubble would be like it's, 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 it, the prices are deviating significantly from what it's actually worth and that there's going to be a course correction that's going to wipe people out, right? Now, I don't think that's happening here. Uh, and I, and, the case here is pretty strong. Like, basically, what happened in two thousand eight, when there was a true bubble bursting, was that there was super loose lending happening to people who shouldn't have gotten mortgages, and mm-hmm. there was a massive increase in inventory going on at the same time. So all that came together, you know, with a whole bunch of other stuff like credit default swaps and stuff that we won't go into to say, all right, once that the you know once the housing prices went down, there wasn't anybody to swoop in right away to pick up the slack, buy the houses, and you know people were more at risk. Whereas I think what what's happened since is we've tightened lending requirements in this country so that the people who've bought houses since the the Great Recession, you know, they're not your low credit type of folks. They're people. There's record number of people, you know, paying cash paying above cash, asking. Yeah. You know, the, the sort of floor for what it means to be able to get a mortgage in this country has gone up pretty dramatically since then. So these these are people buying houses by and large who are uh, way more stable. And as we've covered previously, there are more institutions involved, like private equity groups, et cetera, who are buying up these houses. And so they they will, if there's any kind of loosening of this market at all, chances are they're going to step in too and, and keep these prices inflated. Now, uh, I think what a lot of people are saying, and there's this guy named Bill McBride, who's an economist who predicted the 2008 crisis, in part because he was looking at inventory going up. He's saying that uh, as well, and there was a podcast with Derek Thompson where he talked about this. They're saying that maybe the worst case scenario here is a cooling of the market, something akin to ha- what happened in the late '70s and early '80s when they increased the Fed increased mortgage uh, interest rates, and just like they did now. And basically, what they were saying is that maybe the worst case scenario is that prices 
plateau, or maybe they go down in like slightly in in real in the real sense, like meaning when you take into account inflation. But that would mean that you probably have little to worry about if you own a house. Like if you bought a house for four hundred thousand dollars, it's not going to be worth less than four hundred thousand dollars unless it starts to go down more than the inflation is going up. So I'm not that concerned. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be that concerned if I was somebody holding a house. I would continue to be very concerned if I was somebody trying to buy a house because I don't think there's going to be this dramatic drop that's going to make housing more accessible in this country. And could that be what's happening with the interest rates because interest rates are increasing that that's what's causing people to just buy less houses? There's a supply and demand issue here, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the demand that's happening here is largely fixed in a way. You have millennials entering the housing market and they're the largest group in American history, like when you put them by these categories, and they're on average somewhere between 32 and 33 years old. So like prime home buying age, you obviously have a lot of people who increased their savings during the pandemic. And so they're using that for down payments uh, because they weren't spending it on other things. And up until recently, you've had historically low interest rates. All of that was fueling demand. The one thing the government could control on the demand front is, are the increased uh, interest rates. But still, like I said, we're not in historically high territory. So all that demand is still going to be there. The problem is the supply is the issue. We just aren't building a lot of housing in this country for a variety of reasons that I can go into. And as long as that demand continues to be high, which it will, and the supply continues to be constricted, prices are going to be high. Yeah. And I would say that cities are where the supply issue is the most obvious, where there are just what are, in my opinion, just asinine rules and restrictions on development that make it almost punitive to try to create more housing, especially in these progressive cities that are worried about affordable housing, but then also want to say like, oh, you can only build this many stories or this is a historic district for a really obscure reason. And therefore, you can't do what you want with the property that you buy. And I think, um, you know, San Francisco is a really great example of this for for every four jobs they created, they only added one housing unit and response. And so it's become completely unsustainable to live there. The people that work there can't even live there. This guy named Bob Tillman that Reason Magazine uh, featured who had this laundromat that he'd owned for like eight years that he wanted to um, create into an eight-story apartment building. And it was already zoned for housing. It was in a district with a lot of demand. And he had to go through all these meetings with um, with the council and with people protesting, saying that he was gentrifying by trying to increase the housing supply um, and ended up having to spend $1.2 million just to prepare all the documents and the Amazing. studies that he had to do to create more housing to fight this issue. And ultimately, the project, the project was denied because it would cast a partial shadow on a schoolyard that was nearby. <laughs> and so, you know, you have these cities with these progressive politicians who at the same time aren't actually willing to say it's a clear supply and demand issue. And I don't see a universe in which developers don't want to build for that supply if there's a clearly a market for it. So it's governmental forces that are artificially hampering it. And we did an episode of Regressives about this. We interviewed uh, Connor Doherty from The New York Times, where he specifically he, he wrote a book about you know, what you're talking about, this progressive phenomenon, particularly in the Bay Area, where it's like next to impossible to build density. And there's uh, these two professors, Zach Liskow and Leah Brooks, who coined this term citizen voice. And essentially what they're saying is they, they've they looked back and they said, when did this start? When did it start to become so hard to build in this country? And they go back to the 70s where there was the rise of homeowners associations and other citizen organizations that have, you know, on paper, really good aims. 
uh, like they want to like protect the environment and they want to like maintain the character of their neighborhoods, et cetera, which, you know, we can get into what character of the neighborhood means, but, uh, but it's now become a process and where these like very affluent, usually small concentrations of people can block anything Mm -hmm. and they tie things up in litigation. They get laws passed, like that your house has to be set back a certain amount. It has to be a certain amount of distance from the person next to you. It can only be a single family dwelling, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And all this adds up to the fact that you can't do anything. You can't build anything in a lot of cities unless it's like a single family home with a huge plot of land. And that's bad for density. Uh, It is interesting that the Biden administration has proposed rewarding jurisdictions with federal grants that actually loosen up their zoning laws and promote more building. I'm not sure that's gonna be a dramatic enough step, but we need to do something. Well, we just have to keep an eye out on this housing market. And like I said, hopefully, you know, I'm hoping for a crash because <laughs> I, I want a house. I'm glad right I now. locked my rate in a few months ago. I know, I did the same actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, not I didn't do a few months ago. I just did mine. But Well, well lucky lucky for you guys, but, but uh, <laughs> I'm still, still waiting on that so crash. So one third of us are, are rooting for a crash. <laughs> yes. Uh, we want to thank you all for watching and listening to our show today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.